welcome to the service. So glad you've tuned in with us this morning. If you are new to our page today, um, we are busy journeying through a series called A Call to Courage, Lessons from the Book of Joshua. We're on week four today, but if you've missed any of the previous sermons, you can catch them um, on our YouTube page or by heading over to our church website and you can catch up with us. But there's no reason why you can't slot in with us from this morning. I have one quick announcement today, and that is that this week, Wednesday at seven o'clock, we are having a live online prayer meeting just an opportunity for us to gather together and to seek the Lord and worship Him as the SBC community. Some of our leaders will be up on screen. They will uh, introduce some prayer points to us that we'll then pray through in our homes. And if God lays anything in your heart, the scripture or picture that you would like to encourage us with, you can drop it in the comment section as uh, your way of uh, participating as part of the community online on Wednesday night. So that's this Wednesday, 7 p.m. for our combined prayer meeting. We'd love to have you there. I'm going to hand over to Mark Quick. He has got an update on the pantry ministry for us. Morning, Sterling. Wow. I just want to give a huge shout out to everyone who has contributed to the pantry ministry. Over the last month, we've been able to help 20 families. 20 families who've been in desperate circumstances. The primary responsibility of the pantry ministry is to support uh, needy people in Sterling Baptist Church. We anticipate that that need will continue to grow over the coming months, and so we are preparing for it. Praise the Lord for the awesome generosity that you've shown. And if the current trend of giving continues, we will be able to expand our focus into needy areas in the city of East London as well. We want to encourage you to continue to give to the pantry ministry so that we can meet the need in our church and also start making contributions to well-documented and well-researched initiatives that are serving the poor in our community. Let's keep our hearts soft before the Lord and let's continue to give as He enables us. Well done, guys. Thanks so much for that, Mark. Um, And thank you, Church, for the way that you've been supporting that initiative. Um, Before we head into the rest of the service, I just wanted to remind you that today, when the sermon ends, we're going to head into a time of communion. And so if you haven't got your juice or bread ready with you yet, uh, feel free to hit pause and go grab those elements so that you can participate at the end of the service. And then um, after communion, we'll head into a time of worship. And we'd love you to stay tuned in for that so we can worship God together as the SBC community. If you would also like to worship God through giving today, you can do so online by using our bank details and uh, continue to contribute and support the ministries of our church. We trust that you'll have a wonderful service with us. And just a reminder that as a staff, we are still here to serve you in the season. If there is anything that you need, please do get hold of us. We're going to start phoning people again later this week, um, just to touch base, checking how everybody's doing. Um, and so please do use that as an opportunity um, to update us on how you and your family are coping during this season. We love you and we miss you. And we can't wait to be reunited again soon, hopefully. Have a great day. Morning Church, it's fantastic to have you join us for this online service today. By this stage in lockdown, you might be feeling a little grumpy and frustrated. The isolation that we're all experiencing is not helped by the steady stream of garbage onto your WhatsApp feed, uh, conspiracy theories that are designed to make you feel anxious and fearful. I think it just became that much more important for us to maintain the discipline of meeting together as brothers and sisters in Christ. It gives us a completely different perspective allows us to focus on something else and to remind ourselves about this God who is sovereign, a God who is not surprised by the virus, a God who is not even fearful of the conspiracy theories that are designed to make you so anxious. And he's going to read us a passage of exhortation and encouragement. From Philippians 4, 8-9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learnt or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I want to share one more thing with you, a cause for celebration. When a church goes into lockdown, her leaders become a little anxious about the budget. What's going to happen with giving when we're not meeting together? I can tell you that in the month just past, Uh, Our leaders have asked me to convey to you their tremendous thanks for your faithfulness, for your generosity in this time. Our church budget was met this last month. We were able to pay all our staff and meet all the needed expenses. Thank you so much for your generosity and your faithfulness in giving. 
Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you are sovereign. You're not surprised by any of our circumstances. Lord, we thank you for the generosity of your church and for your leaders that have been so encouraging at this time. Thank you, Lord, that when we focus on what is true and right and beautiful, you bring us peace. And Father, again, we ask that you would speak to us this morning by your Holy Spirit. Make us obedient to what you have to say. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Hello everyone, welcome to today's online service and welcome to those who join us for the first time. Today we're looking at part four of our series through the book of Joshua called Call to Courage. And we're looking at the life of Joshua and the Israelites and we're trying to learn as much as we can about courageous faith and how we need it in this time, right? So today to kick us off, we have one of our deacons and small group leaders called Catherine DeClack and she's going to be reading from Joshua chapter 3 verse 1 to 13 and chapter 4 verse 1 to 7. Hi everyone, um, it's a privilege to read God's word with you today, so if you want to open up and read with me. Chapter 3 Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests to bear the Ark of the Covenant. When you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you, into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each man a tribe. And when the soles of the feet of the priests, bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. Chapter 4 When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodged tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe, and Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God, into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. Thank you, Kath. All right, so we are at a really exciting moment today because the Israelites are finally going to cross over this river Jordan into the promised land. I mean, they've been waiting for this for 40 years, and you can imagine that level of excitement. But again, Joshua chapter 3 stresses to us 
that they didn't know exactly where to go. They knew the general direction, but they didn't know the lie of the land. And so the commanders that Joshua sends out in Joshua chapter 3, verse 3 to 4, say this. He says, as soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord, your God, being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. In other words, they were trusting the leadership of the Lord over their life as a nation to take them into this promised land. They didn't know exactly where they were going to go, but they were trusting him. And this, is, this leads me to my first point today, which is this. Courageous faith seeks to stay close to the presence of the Lord. I'll say it again. Courageous faith seeks to stay close to the presence of the Lord. And there is a very important relationship between this Ark of the Covenant in Israel and the people themselves. And this Ark of the Covenant is very, very special to the Israelites because it's the symbolism of the presence of God. And uh, that is why the Ark of the Covenant was put in the Holy of Holies, this very, very um, innermost place of the tent that the Israelites constructed called the Tabernacle in the wilderness. It was the very focal point of God's presence because above that Ark of the Covenant, there was something called the mercy seat. And there was a deposit of God's presence there. And so it was very holy, very precious, very revered by Israel. And something wonderful about their relationship to this Ark of the Covenant can be seen in their proximity to it all the time. You know, when the Israelites were walking through the wilderness, uh, when they had to set up camp, the book of Numbers tells us that they had a very orderly way the tribes were to set themselves up around the central focal point of this tabernacle. And inside this tent was the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. And it's amazing. Um, every tribe had to camp either in the north or the south or the east or the west. But the, the point of this camping was at the very center of God's people, at the very focal point, at the very, um, in the very midst of them, was the presence of God. And uh, this is something very precious. You know, if, if you were an Israelite, when you put your head down in your tent at night to lie down in that camp, your concept would not have been God being out there in the cosmos. Your concept would have been, man, God is right here in the midst with us. He's on this journey with us. I mean, what comfort, just a couple of tents away, there's God. And so uh, it's, it's a powerful theme of this presence of God. And um, the very uh, concepts of, of or leadership upon Israel, uh, of, of where they needed to go and where they needed to stay throughout the whole wilderness experience was led by God's presence. And uh, I want to point out to you today, this is one of the areas where they got their courage from. You know, if you read the story of Israel through their journey in the wilderness, was they knew when to pack up and start walking and when to set up camp and rest by this cloud that would come down on the tabernacle, resting symbolic of coming down on that Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God. And when that cloud was over the tent and stayed there, the Israelites knew they, they weren't to go anywhere. They were to set up camp. And the book of Numbers is very quick to stress. It could be a couple of days. could be a couple of months. could be even a couple of, who knows, longer than a couple of months. I mean, 40 years is a long time, right? But until that cloud lifted off that tabernacle and went into the sky, those Israelites didn't move. And they would track by day with that cloud, and at night it became a pillar of fire, so they knew exactly in which direction to go. And when that cloud would stop, the Israelites knew it's time to stop. But the point of it is this, the leadership of Israel was coming from the presence of God himself. And the crossing of the Jordan, our text today, is no different. Do you notice that the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of the presence of God, goes first, and the priests carrying it in poles. It was very holy. If you touched it, you could die. It was quite hectic. But they had it on their shoulder. And when that priest put their foot in the water, put his foot in the water, the waters stacked up, up further upriver, and it became dry ground. But the point was the people knew where to go because the presence of the Lord was leading them. Now, that's powerful. And we learn a lot about the nature of this leadership, even just in this text alone. But if you look at the history of Israel, this leadership of God upon his people is a dynamic leadership. It is a direct leadership. He's personally speaking and he's guiding and he's leading them. 
there's nothing mechanical or distant about this. In other words, he's not leading his people by remote control. He's leading them with his person, with his presence. And granted, there are times when um, it's coming through Joshua in our text. There's a mediator for that. Our, our Joshua is Jesus. Jesus is our mediator. But often there is a direct presence of God that leads his people. Um, and it's a wonderful dynamic. And I want to unpack this a bit today. You see, just as there was this dynamic leadership of God's presence over his people, Israel, in the book of Joshua, as Christians, we are to experience the same. You know, Jesus is something that, if you really think about it, is a profound statement in John chapter 10, verse 27. He said this, he says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. You know, Jesus is called our good shepherd, and just like Joshua shepherding God's people into the promises, so Jesus shepherds us. And if you think about this relationship between sheep's, sheep and the shepherd, is the sheep are always in earshot of the shepherd. Um, they're close to him. They follow his lead. His presence amongst them is what helps them know where to go. And sheep can wander from that presence, and then it's dangerous. But the whole interchange between the Christian and, and Jesus, their good shepherd, is one of very close personal presence that leads us, as you know, we, we, where we need to go, just like sheep following a shepherd. Now, I have to ask you this question today. My friend, do you know this leadership of God's presence in your life? And whenever you look at courageous faith in Scripture, it's one of the marks that is there. Is people aren't following their own whims or their own their own great ideas. Is their courage and their leadership is coming from this presence of God in their lives. And there are many, many examples, but one I want to show you today is the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 16. Um, he decides to go and revisit the churches he planted in his first missionary journey, and so he sets he sets, he sets out to go to the area of Galatia which is kind of like southeastern Turkey, right about there. And um, he then sets out from Galatia to start going to do new work because he's now planted these churches and he wants to find a new harvest ground for the gospel. And do you know, he decides, well, I'm going to go off to preach in Asia, which is kind of south, southwest in Turkey. But as he turns to start going down there with his ministry team, the Holy Spirit says, no, don't do it. So he goes, okay, doesn't want to go south. Well, let me go north. Let me go into Bithynia, which is another Roman province in northern Turkey. As he tries, God says, no, by the Holy Spirit, you forbade him. So you may not go. So what do you do? If you've really been where you are and you've done that work, you can't go south. You can't go north. Well, then you just keep going in the direction that you go and you go west. And Paul lands up in Troas and he's sitting there waiting. He doesn't know what to do. And then suddenly there's this vision of a Macedonian man that calls him over into a whole new ministry ground, which Paul never thought about, which was was Greece, which was um, was this European uh, continent. Now, there's something in that, you know. God doesn't micromanage us. In other words, he he is not um, very uh, what's the word fussy around everything that we do. You know, Paul had a lot of freedom. He wanted to go visit, revisit the churches. It was a good idea. It was unlike his first missionary journey, which was a command from the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit says, set apart Barnabas and Paul, and they were doing it in obedience. The second missionary journey was very different for Paul. He set out with the sense of going, well, I just want to do this. But do you notice because of the presence of God in his life, this Holy Spirit dwelling in him, he just knew he wasn't supposed to go south or north. And then he just kept tracking and waiting. But he was being led by the presence of God in his life. Jesus is another great example. I mean, here Jesus is preaching and he's at his best. I mean, the towns in Galilee are flocking to him. His ministry is exploding and he spends a night in prayer with the Father and he comes out to his disciples from his prayer time. He says, we've got to go to other villages. And their mouth drops open. And, what? How can we be going? Jesus, you're knocking it out of the park here. Yeah? I mean, you're preaching to thousands. I mean, they're just eating up your words. We're loving being part of your ministry team at this time. We're so famous. <laughs> and then what happens is this. Jesus says, no, no, you've got to move on to some unknown territory. You see, he was being led by his father's presence in his life. Now, I want to really do this a little bit more. 
You see, there's two ways of knowing God's presence in your life. And the first is the way that that first generation of Israel that left Egypt, that died in the wilderness, knew God's presence. And that was just God simply keeping them alive. <laughs> I mean, God was giving them manna every day, and he was giving them quail, and then he didn't let their clothes uh, wear out. I mean, he was so good to them. And they knew his presence by his provision, but they still didn't get anywhere. That really struck me. Is it's right. We are to get a sense of God's goodness to us in this time, particularly in lockdown. I mean, if you've got food on your table, if you've got a roof over your head and you've got clothes on your back, my friend, you're in good shape because there's a lot of people who feel like they're about to lose them. And we are to rejoice in the goodness of God and him keeping us alive and sustaining the life that he's given us until that day he calls us home. But you see, that's the only the basic way of knowing God's presence through what he gives us. Jesus says there's a higher way. And it comes to him in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, he said, don't even worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear. He says, as a Christian, you're guaranteed these things until God calls you home. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things. They'll be added unto you. You'll know God in your life in this way, guaranteed, almost scandalously, whether you're on track with God or not, God can be so good into the Christian and just looking after him, even in a place of disobedience like that first generation. Ah, oh, but he says there's a higher way of knowing God in your life through his presence. It is to seek his kingdom, his leadership on your life, his rulership and sovereign reign, and his righteousness in keeping in step where he wants to go, how he wants you to live, what he wants you to do. There is a higher way for us to live in the second generation God it Christ. They understood that there was more to knowing God than him just keeping them alive and sustaining. They'd been there, they'd done that, they'd been in that place for a long time. But there was this direct leadership of God on their lives that it was different to God just sustaining their life. It was that he was leading their life. They knew that they were on track with God. There was a sense of God saying, you're doing well, come on. We, we, they knew that their conscience was clear, that they were tracking with the Lord in their lives. The leadership of God's presence was not just felt through, or the presence of God was not just felt through what he had been giving them, but actually the direct presence of God's leadership upon their lives. And we ought to know this leadership. We're not just to settle for the first kind. We ought to grow in our hunger and thirst for the second kind. Friends, we need the sense of God's leading presence in our lives, of the sense of being in step with him. Now, I want to ask you a question today. How long can you go without sensing God's presence in your life? How long can you go without sensing God's presence in your life? How long can you go for before you notice God has not gone with you? Can you even notice the difference between God's nearness in his life versus his absence? Can you, can you notice the difference? Are you aware of something missing when his presence is not tangibly there? Does it get your attention? You know, there's a, a, a painful moment in the book of Ezekiel when this prophet sees through a vision the, the temple of God. And in this temple, God's presence starts to lift the glory of God is departing from Israel. And God does it slowly. He, he comes up and he, he starts to lift from, lift from that, that holy of holies. His glory starts to lift from his temple. His presence is about to leave. And he stops. He stops above the temple and he waits to see if Israel is going to notice that the glory of God is leaving his people. And no one notices. So then he goes up into the sky of it. And there is God waiting to see, are the Israelites, are his people, who have learned to enjoy the centrality of his presence for generations, going to notice that he is leaving? They don't notice. Eventually, he leaves the picture altogether. And you know what? Israel, Jerusalem, didn't back an island. They went on being religious. They went on giving their, their offerings of worship, their prayers, they did their tithing, they did all of these things that they knew were, were important according to God's word. But the most important thing of his presence was they didn't have a clue, he had left the building. 
And friends, today, this is an urgent matter in your life and mine. You know, when there was an absence of God for a period of time, it was agonizing to the saints in the Bible. It was not a place to remain and stay in. For them, David was in agony in Psalm 13 when he says, God, how long are you going to hide your face from me? How long are you going to keep your presence from my life? I'm in agony here, Lord. I'm used to you leading me from your presence. I'm used to being close to you. I'm used to having the sense of fellowship of you in my life. But it's gone, and I'm left hanging on autopilot here. I don't know where you're going. I don't know where your leadership is. I'm desperate for you in my life, Lord. He could know the difference between being God showing his faith. When, when a person shows you his face, you can see what they feel. You can see what they say. You get every kind of aspect and inclination around what their disposition is. But when someone hides their faith, it's agonizing because you don't know where they are at. There's this, there's this gap. There's this feeling of you can't get to them. Something's closed. And friends, even for David in his sin, in Psalm 51, that terrible sin he committed with Bathsheba, and murdering her husband Uriah. You know what? It wasn't that David was worried he wasn't going to be forgiven in that psalm. Ever pick that up in Psalm 51? He says, cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. What he feared was that he said, cast me not from your presence, O God. Remove not your Holy Spirit from me. Don't let me lose touch with you. That was his great cry of his heart. The great longing of his heart was, Lord, don't leave me hanging yet. Don't let me lose touch with you. You see, he knew he was a, he was a done for man. Just like those first generation of Israelites were, he was done for if he didn't save God and savor and hold to be precious this presence of God in his life and the leadership he felt from it. You know, Moses was the same when those Israelites committed that terrible sin of building this golden calf. They were, they were so fickle that they couldn't wait for 40 days for Moses to come down from the mountain. And they started to worship this golden calf. Do you know what? God was so angry. He said, you can go into the promised land, but I'm not going to go with you. I'll send my angel with you. And Moses says, if you don't go with us, God, we're not going. Moses knew that if the presence of God was not going to go with them in that promised land, they could have all the success, the fame, and the fortune that their hearts could desire, but they would be missing the best thing of all. They would be missing the very commendation upon God's people, which was saying, out of all the people of the world, I'm choosing you to be my habitation. I'm choosing you to come close to you. I'm choosing you as my honored people that I'm going to make central to my presence. Moses said this, if you don't go with us, God, we've lost what makes us distinct. Jesus, the thing that broke him on the cross was not the fact that these guys have been so nasty to him, the fact that these people had judged him unfairly or that these trials had been un, un, unjust, the thing that broke him on the cross was when the Father separated himself from him and Jesus cried out, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was a break there that broke Jesus. God turned his face on his son. Now, friends, I want to say this to you today. How long can you go without a sense of God's presence in your life? Does it disturb you? Is there an, an awareness of the difference when he's there and when he's not? And I want to say to you today, you can feel God's presence through what he gives you. That's the point. All the time. I understand that. But it's an, it's an abstract feeling. It's an abstract thing of, yeah, God's giving me food and he's giving me clothes. But do you know his immediate sense of his presence in your life through the power of the Spirit? Do you understand that God is coming to make his home with you, Jesus said? And that the joy of the Christian is to know intimacy with God. And that is the primary space of his leadership in our lives. It's not remote control. It's not autopilot. It's his voice. It's his presence. And I want to ask you, do you ever feel that in your life where God will say, no, don't do that. He'll interject. I mean, we have a lot of freedom as Christians. We don't have to wake up in the morning and say, what time must I wear? Or, or what jeans must I wear? Or, no, God gives us a lot of freedom, but he holds the right to shepherd and govern us as we go choose which grass we're going to go eat today. As we go decide, oh, I think we're going to romp over here a bit today. Ah, but we are in his sovereign gaze. And when we go too far, he says, no, don't do that. Don't go too far. Do you hear his promptings, his guidings, his leadership, his voice? Is it real for you? Because remember, guys, today, let's just get to the bottom line here. All these practices in the Christian life 
of prayer and scripture and fellowship with other believers and worship and responding to the frequent listening of God's word through preaching. They're not merely there just to please God. I hope that's not what you, your only primary idea is just because you want to please God. It's not bad, but it's not enough. I'm sure those Israelites, when Ezekiel saw the glory of God leaving the temple, thought, well, we're doing pretty well. I mean, we're doing all of our sacrifices, our, our prayers. We're making sure that we, we're not touching anything that's unclean. We're eating right. We're doing everything that he's told us to do. But they missed the point. They missed the point of through all of this. It was so that they might enjoy the ready presence of God in their lives and the fullness of blessing. His happy and, and uh, satisfied leadership upon their lives brought. And guys, what we are doing in all of these practices is we want to get close to God. We want to hear his voice. You know, when you open up your Bible and you're praying or when you're coming to a church service like today or when you are coming with Christians in your Zoom small group meetings or whatever it looks like, is you're not just doing it to get something done to please God. No, you want to feel his presence. You want a sense of God. What do you want to say? You're feeling for him. You're wanting to be close to him. You're wanting your heart to be open to whatever he has to say to you because you want to be close to him. You want to be near to him. That's the driving force of our faith. That's why we do all these things is because we want to know God, but not just intellectually or abstractly through what he does for us. We want to know him in the immediacy of his closeness to us. His voice. His very words. And maturity, my friend, is this. Maturity is the ability to discern God's voice in your life and to respond immediately. Do you know uh, what reminded me in the first verse of this um, chapter 3 of Joshua, where it says, then Joshua rose early. He knew in Joshua chapter 2, the, the, the spies came back and said, God's given you this land, buddy. God's given it to us. And clearly, whilst they've been awake, Joshua had heard God's voice because in Joshua chapter 3, he knows exactly how to cross the river Jordan. He knows exactly how to lead his people. All that time that, that he waited and took his time to hear what God was going to do paid off. But his obedience was immediate. The second that next morning came, he rose up early in the morning and said, come guys, we're going to go. And it reminded me of Abraham. You know, at the end of Abraham's life, which was a mark of his maturity before God, God said to him, I want you to sacrifice Isaac, which was the evidence of God's promise to Abraham. And it says, early in the morning, he got up and he, and he went. Friends, maturity is not just enjoying the presence of God in your life. Maturity is responding to it. It is learning to take its leadership upon your life by staying close with you are primed in your heart to do what he tells you to do and to make the gap as short as possible. Now, this is not an easy way to live. Not so. I mean, let's just be honest here. As I'm preaching it in my own mind and going, yeah, Matt, just think this last week alone, how difficult it has been to surrender to what you know God's leadership on your life is saying. And it can be very small. We're not talking about taking over the world here. It can come through in, 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 in little ways. But it is hard to follow God because in, a, in, a, in essence, what you are needing to do is to say, Lord, I'm surrendering my own will here. My own wants of how I want things to look and where I want things to go and the timing of things. I'm literally surrendering my space of control and security to you. And that is not something we like. That is not something that is easy. That's not, not something that we do easily, uh, readily. And I want to sympathize today. If you are like me, you know, even from last week's sermon, God spoke to me clearly in that final point. And I haven't done it yet. You see, because there are things in my own life that I'd rather do. But yet I realize more and more that if I'm going to live this way where I want God's presence and his leadership in my life, I've got to show courage. I've got to do what he tells me to do if I want to go where he wants me to go. And if I'm going to enjoy what that second generation of Israelites enjoyed, which was that plot of promise. And so... Today, friends, we need a lot of encouragement if we're going to live this way of seeking to stay close to the presence of God. We need times where we need to be spurred on because there can be times of great discouragement and fear, of having to trust God when he's told us to do something and going, I don't know what on the other side this is going to look like. 
or I don't know how this is going to work out, but I'm going to do it because I know this is where God is leading me and this is what God has said. That's courage, my friend. That's courage. And I want to use the brief time that we have left today to unpack my two final points very quickly. But my second point today is linked to the first, is that courageous faith needs encouragement from the Lord. I'm very aware that as we're talking about this first point that I've been speaking about, it is it is a searching thing in our hearts to ask ourselves and, and how we are tracking where our desires for God's presence, how we're following. And, and, you know, I want to say to you today from Joshua chapter 3, you've got to ask yourself the question, what was the point of these Israelites having to cross the River Jordan? Really, I mean, they could have, God has could have, by his presence, led them up a bit further down the river, found a shallow a ford, could have crossed over, maybe gone around, found a bridge. Why did God have to lead them through the Jordan in this way where the priests had to carry the ark with their feet in the river, stop this flowing river again so they can go across and drive Why is God doing all of this? Well, it comes to in Joshua chapter 3, verse 10. It says, um, Joshua says, here is how you shall know. Sorry, by yeah, Joshua, the Lord says to Joshua, this is, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you. And that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hebites, the Perizzites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, the Jebusites. He's saying, I am going to prove my promise to you. I'm going to confirm it in this moment by saying, you're going to walk over this river miraculously because I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to say to you, this promise that I've given you, I'm going to confirm in this miraculous work of encouragement and confirmation. The only reason why God does all this for them crossing over Jordan is to encourage his people to say, hey man, I'm going with you. I've given you the promise but I'm going to now confirm it again to you today in helping you cross this river Jordan. He did it for encouragement. Um, and you know, the promise should have been enough. Joshua 1 should have been enough for God's people. We, God said to them, listen, you need to go and take the land because I'm giving it to you. But you see, God knew his people. Friends, the thing I love about this God and his leadership on our lives is that he knows that we're made of flesh. He knows that we're weak. He knows that we're full of doubts and troubles and trials. He knows that uh, we are not superhuman. And Psalm 103 says this, it says, you know, he knows our frame, that we're made of dust. And today, I want to say to you, the reason why I want to be so jealous for you to guard this presence of God in your life, and if you, you felt distance from him, to go after him again, is because God is the source of our encouragement. And when you are tracking with God in this way, he has surprising ways of shoring up your faith in difficult and testing times from his presence. And so, guys, we need this more than ever in lockdown. I know how wearisome this is feeling, and, and we almost stretch to our end. Some of us are just at our wit's end, financially, emotionally, physically, even spiritually. You are being stretched to the max. But I want to say to you today, what you will do if you will continue to track with God and soften your heart and seek his presence and to stay close to him, in other words, you will find that he is the God of encouragement, as Romans 15 says. He is the God of endurance and encouragement. He has a wonderful way of directly coming to you through surprising ways and saying, hey, I'm with you. I've got you. We're going to do this together. My presence is going to go before you. I'm not going to leave or forsake you. And he knows when we need it. And you must remember, these Israelites, they weren't robots. You know, sometimes I think we just think, yes, sir, off we go to the promised land. <laughs> no. You know, the thing that I love about it in Joshua chapter 4, verse 10, was it says the people passed over that river in haste. They were, they were buying. They were scared that this water was going to maybe come crashing over them. I mean, yeah, God's presence was there with the Ark of the Covenant. But they were scared. They had to run over. It was me. I'd be doing the same. Like, how long is this sort of barrier going to last for? But you see, God knows how to deal with us. And he knows how to bring encouragement when we really need it. And, and it leads me to my third point today. These encouragements are so precious. And I'm not talking about, oh, I stubbed my toe and I got better. I mean, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about acts of God in their timing and in their manner. You just know that was God. That was God saying to you, especially on a surprise day, saying, surprise, just reminding you again, I've got you, I'm with you. And it leads to my final point is this, and it's probably 
The take-home point I want you to remember today is that the courageous faith that we're talking about in the book of Joshua, it has a memory. Courageous faith has a memory. And this is the whole point of Joshua chapter 4, verse 2 to 3, when God says to Joshua, take 12 men from the people, from each tribe of man, and command them, saying, take 12 stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you will lodge tonight. God says to Joshua and to his people, I want you to take hold of this mighty act of encouragement, and to set up a memorial forever so that when you look at it, I want you to remember that I confirmed my promise to you in a powerful way. And that when you start to get a bit anxious in your heart, you start going, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it through this, Lord. Like You are so, taking such a long time. My prayers are taking so long to be answered. I don't know what the next step is. You're going, but remember, remember the 12 stones, remember the memorial, that this great act of God leading his people through the Jordan, it was a memorial that was to become a reference for their faith. That was the point. They were to have a memory so that when they were going to tackle some massive challenges ahead of them, they had a reference point of faith. They got their courage from this memory of God saying, I'm not just telling you the promise, I'm confirming it to you through these mighty acts of encouragement. And it's so important, you know, faith lives according to memory. You know, an immature way of living is going, I'm all grumpy now because God has to prove his word before I believe anything. You know, I'm in this trial, I'm in this situation, and I'm waiting for God to come and tell me, you know, I'm going to do it in some powerful way. I'm waiting for a sign. That's not a mature way to live, my friend. A mature faith is being able to have a memory where you go, well, God has asked me of this, but he's proven his promise to me before. He's confirmed it before. There are 12 stones in my life that are set up, and I can look back and say this is a reference point of faith. I can go back and say I can gain courage because I know God confirmed his promise to me, and so I'm going to trust him and I'm going to carry on. That's how courageous faith works is a mature faith doesn't wait for God to constantly prove his word. That's what is called putting God to the test, my friend, and it's a very dangerous thing to do. I want to ask you today, if you're going around the same mountain again and again and you keep waiting for God to prove himself in the same way where he's done it again and again, and we are slow of heart to believe, God says in Hebrews chapter 3, it, it provokes him. It says these 10 times, you have, have tested me in the wilderness. He doesn't like to be tested. He wants to be taken at his word. And he encourages us in that, but he expects us to remember and apply what he's done. And so wrapping this all up today, the point of the 12 stones, my friend, is that our faith rests on facts, not feelings. Don't expect your feelings to shepherd you into courage. They're not they're going to set you in the opposite direction saying, look at what you can see. Look at what you can see. There's no way God's going to come through for you in this. This The, the, the river's too big. Jericho's too tall. All those things. No, no. Faith operates on facts. Facts of what has God done? What has God said? And what has he proven to me over and over again? We are to build on the stones, not on the feelings. And the thing about this is, is that really, you know, perhaps this is going to be a breakthrough moment for somebody here today. You need to find your 12 stones again, my friends. Lockdown is going to test you to the hilt. What are your 12 stones? What are your memorials that you're going to look back and say, that's my reference point of faith. That's where I look back and say, God has done this for me. I'm going to stand. I'm going to trust him again. He has confirmed his promise to me. And, you know, these stones are very simple things. You know, stones are unsophisticated. And you don't have to erect a, a monument in your garden every time God does something to you for you that you know powerfully confirms his word in your life. But these stones, they teach us some things. They teach us that, you know, when God does something great in your life, slow down, celebrate it. Joshua sends those guys back before just carrying on and saying, hey, you've got to go off and take this land. And they forget about what God has just done. He sends those 12 men back. They go back. They savor the moment. They pick up the stone and they carry it with them. They are celebrating these moments and they treasure them in their lives. You need to do the same. Don't move on too quickly when God does something that's a great encouragement to you. But these other things around the stones that we can learn is that they were set up in such a way that the Israelites came across them regularly. That they were also set up in such a way that they could be passed on. And today I want to challenge you. Have you recorded your 12 stones? 
Have you set up your memorial about God has done in your life? You see, uh, there's various ways you can do this. You can do it I journal. I, um, I don't often read the journal. That's the problem. So then I'm going, okay, well, is there a better way? And Meryl Clopper showed me this. Uh, she's in Cape Town, beloved Meryl. She said in her, in her book of scriptures, she would mark the date and she would put there what God had done or said to her. And I've started doing it. You know what the amazing thing is for me is because I'm doing a Bible reading plan and I read through my Bible, I try once here. Some years I get it right, some years I don't. Is we find that I come back to that text again and again and again. And uh, reminds me. And so, guys, how are you going to set up these stones in your life? What are you going to do to document them? Look back and say, these are my reference points of faith. This is what I'm going to do to help me remember how God powerfully encouraged and confirmed his word in my life. Because, friends, moms and dads, grandparents, aunts, uncles, this is not just for you today, these 12 stones of God's memorial in your life. It's for those that are coming up behind you. And I can't tell you how many times my parents have been a blessing in being able to share their memorials with me. And their memorials became my memorials of faith growing up. And I got my own, but they stayed. I mean, my mom's great scripture of, she'll often say, Matthew, remember what the psalmist said? I was young and now I'm old. And I've never seen the children of the righteous forsaken or begging for bread. Don't you worry, God's going to provide. And he has. Her memorial stone has become mine. And let's take up this call for faith at home, for faith in family, for us to be examples of celebrating and talking about and making these memorials of faith accessible to those who are coming up behind us. So I'm going to hand over to Joe. He's going to lead us in a time of communion. And he's going to unpack the greatest memorial stones that God has given us in Christ for the church in this act of communion. And so over to Joe. Hi everyone. Thank you, Matt, so much for that message. What I loved about the message is that it spoke about a memorial. Um, and we as Christians have been given a memorial as well by Jesus, and it's called the Lord's Supper. But the point of a memorial is not that we would just remen- remember some facts, but the point of a memorial is that it will lead us to worship, that we would cherish, that we would treasure, that we would value Christ for what he has done for us, particularly on the cross in this case. But how is that done? Well, I think it's done three ways. One, it's done by remembering, particularly here, remembering Christ and what he has done for us on the cross, the shedding of his blood and the breaking of his body for us so that we might enjoy him and get to know him. And worship happens when our heart is stirred to a point through remembering that we look to Christ and we say that he is the most valuable person in all of history, that his death is the most important death in all of history. And as we enjoy him and as we worship him by remembering, it leads our hearts to know that he is precious and that leads to to worship. The second way is proclaiming. If remembering is calling to mind uh, some information uh, that leads to worship, then proclaiming is telling others about what Christ has done. Uh, This is the natural part of worship, to first enjoy and cherish and value something so much that it bursts out of our hearts uh, so that we start telling others about it. We see this with people who have uh, newborn babies. They get them Uh, They value their children, they love it so much, they can't help but showing and telling everyone about it. Have you ever gone onto Facebook and seen a a mother that's a a new mother recently? She just goes and posts a hundred different pictures of the same photo just from a a various um, different angle. She just has to express and tell others how cute and valuable her child is to her. And the same way is with Christ, is that when we remember and cause this incredible value of Jesus in our hearts, it helps us to express and proclaim the wonder of our God that we have to tell others about it. And lastly, I think it's nourishment. Nourishment is that we realize that our life in Christ is uh, incredibly nourished by who he is. 
It is as we partake of these elements, remembering that our, our lives are spiritually nourished when we come to Jesus, feast on Him, drink of Him, partake of Him. And that's what these elements are there to remind us of. Have you ever wondered why we don't eat a massive meal? It's because this is not meant to nourish us physically, but it is rather to nourish us spiritually. And worship happens when we come to Jesus in this moment. We go, Lord, what we need is you. We need you more than physical food. We need you more than anything that life can offer. You nourish us. We want to come and feast on you. In that moment, Christ is worshipped, treasured, valued above all else. And that's the point of um, communion, the Lord's Supper. So as we do this, as we partake of the elements now, as we take this bread and we break it and we remember that Christ's body was broken for us, as we drink of this grape juice or whatever you might have at home and, and we drink of it and we remember that His uh, blood has been shed for us, make sure you stir up worship in your heart, that you value Him above all else, that you build it up to a place that you just need to let other people know and you let him know that you need him more than anything else in all creation. Let us partake of these elements. Let us eat and drink together. Father, we are incredibly grateful for your son, Jesus. We thank you that you sent him. We thank you for your love. Lord Jesus, we just want to acknowledge that you are all that we need. You are better than life itself. You nourish us. We want to feast upon you. We want to enjoy you, Lord, for in you there is life alone. That's all that we need is Jesus Christ. May you be honored and valued in our hearts. May you stir up worship in us, we pray, for the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.